and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren Maynard. With me is my duck friend, Mark Schmore. If you were with us last week, you joined us for a two-hour deep dive extravaganza into University of Washington football spring review with our special guest, Kayla Olin. And uh, I want to say thank you again to Kayla for joining us. We're back this week focusing in on the Oregon Ducks and their spring game, their spring review, looking ahead to the fall season. Mark, uh, as you look ahead, as you as you kind of just take a moment to reflect on the spring game, the state of the program, just what are your general thoughts about what, what uh, Oregon fans like you are thinking and feeling about Oregon football today? You know, Warren, a couple weeks ago, I think we had a conversation uh, as spring football was getting underway and there were some comments that were out there. You know, C.J. Verdell wanted to win the Heisman. Kayvon Thibodeau wanted to win the Heisman. You know, they were C.J. Verdell, I think, said his goal was to run for 2,000 yards. Right. And and I think I said to you something to the effect of I'm, I'm nervous hearing this kind of thing. This isn't what I want to hear in the spring. Like, I want to hear that just everybody's kind of working hard towards the goal and everything like that. And I have to tell you, my mindset has shifted dramatically where I've come out of the spring now and having read all of the different reports of what happened in camp and read reports of the spring game and watched highlights of the spring game that I'm, I'm just like, man, can we, can we start this season next week? Like, let's go. Like, this is, this is great. I'm ready. I'm ready for the season. So I'm, yeah, I am filled with enthusiasm and excitement about this year's duck team. And I'm hoping I don't talk myself out of that over the course of the next few months, but that that's where I am today. Well, Mark, I gleefully uh, announced last week that I was drinking the purple Kool-Aid. It, can I read into your comments that you are now drinking the green Kool-Aid? Yeah, yes, absolutely. I, I may not be predicting, you know, 20 NFL draft picks <laughs> and, you know, a 14 and 0 season or, 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 I may not be going to, to quite those extremes, but yeah. uh, but I am I am very much looking forward uh, to the season ahead with with I think reasonable expectations that this could be a, a really good Ducks team. Well, let's talk about this squad. So this this is Mario Cristobal's fourth year as a head coach. It's the second year for offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead, and uh, it's also the the first year for new defensive. Uh, coordinator Tim DeRuiter, who's coming over from California, uh, replacing Andy Avalos. And they are coming off of a couple of the best recruiting classes, at least by ranking in Oregon football history. Uh, Technically, back-to-back conference championships. And yet, at the same time, uh, their performance against Iowa State, the 4-3 record uh, overall, left a lot to be desired. Um, Where do you see, and I think I already know your answer to this, but where do you see the Oregon program trending in terms of its general direction? Is this, is this an upward ascent or uh, are we expecting a a steep decline? Yeah. I, I think uh, if you look at the, the Cristobal era, you know, um, if, if kind of the ground zero was, you know, the last season of the Mark Helfrich tenure and then the departure of Willie Taggart, 
that season didn't really lift it up anymore. It's been a pretty steady, it was a pretty steady increase for Cristobal's first two seasons. They win nine games. They beat the Huskies in his first year. Then the next year they, they win the PAC 12, they win the Rose bowl. So that was a pretty consistent upward last year. I would describe it as, as a little Rocky, but I don't, I don't think it, it turned into kind of a downward trajectory as much as it just kind of leveled off a little bit. And I think the opportunity now for this year's team is to keep that upwards trajectory. Whereas I think the, the concern would be if that really does turn into a, to a downward trajectory. And a lot of that is just because I don't put a whole lot of stock into this COVID shortened season that we just had. I think there were a lot of different challenges that every single team was, was facing. I think some teams handled those better than others. Uh, We saw nationwide, a lot of, you know, traditional programs like, Penn State or Michigan really struggle. Uh, so I don't I don't read too much into uh, just what happened last season. I, I think uh, I want to take the good from it and I don't want to be too concerned about the red flags that were there and just trust that that those are things that can get ironed out with uh, with an entire offseason. So uh, obviously the way it ended against Iowa State was not what you want, but overall I, I still think there's a lot to be hopeful about uh from what this year's team has to play for well certainly the big question that a lot of people ask at least if they're a casual fan is who's the quarterback and Oregon had an interesting year last year coming off of Justin Justin Herbert and his tremendous success Tyler Shuck took over as the quarterback uh, had some good games had some poor games ultimately was you know somewhat pulled out at specific moments in the Pac-12 championship and then benched for the Fiesta Bowl against Iowa State now Anthony Brown with this extra year of eligibility is g- going to be coming in as the presumed number 1 starter for this year but with a trio of really talented and highly rated freshman quarterbacks it's it's kind of an interesting dynamic in that you have two tr- uh, two true freshman quarterbacks by way of the extended uh, eligibility and then a true true freshman quarterback in Ty Thompson uh, who is the five star that everybody's you know craving to see so first of all let's I've got two questions the first one is Let's talk about Anthony Brown first, and then we'll talk about these backup uh, quarterbacks. So on a spectrum between Marcus Mariota and Braxton Burmeister, where is Anthony Brown in the spectrum of, of Oregon Duck quarterbacks over the last 20 years? First of all, I'm glad you brought up Braxton Burmeister because uh, I, I was watching the spring game and watching Mainly, I was interested to see the guys that were not Anthony Brown because I, I was at least familiar with what Anthony Brown could do, whereas these other three guys, it was kind of the first meaningful action that I'd seen from any of them. And what struck me is they all looked confident, comfortable, just running a college offense, making college throws, doing things like that. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be too hard on, on the Braxton Burmeisters of the world, but Oregon has had different seasons where they have lost quarterbacks, whether it was losing Justin Herbert, 
uh, during his sophomore year, whether it was losing Vernon Davis to an injury uh, in the uh, Vernon Alamo Adams. Bowl. Or Vernon Adams, I'm sorry, not yeah. Vernon Davis. Vernon yeah. Adams in the Alamo Bowl against TCU or, or losing Dennis Dixon or Kellen Clemens. Oregon has had these different uh, kind of catastrophic injuries to their quarterback. And in each of those cases, it really felt like it was asking a lot for the backup to just piece together uh, a game without, without totally ruining things. And I think what I came away with more than anything was they have some real depth at this position. Now, who knows in this day and age, if, if all those guys are still on the roster, you know, come the first game. But uh, what I saw was it's going to be a really competitive battle. Anthony Brown is kind of the leader at the turn, you could say. Uh, but, but he's going to have guys pushing him each day and practice multiple guys. And I think that can only benefit the Ducks offense as a whole to have several different guys in a real competition uh, for that spot. And especially with one of them being a senior and the others all being freshmen, you know, I think you're, you're less likely to see an unhappy transfer as a result from the, a guy if he doesn't you know, lose uh, or if he loses the starting job, because uh, if Anthony Brown ends up being the starter, these highly touted freshmen are still going to have a chance next season to earn that spot. So I'm excited about that. Uh, to get to your second question, you know, Anthony Brown, where do I rate him? Uh, I would say this, I would say the ceiling for Anthony Brown is not a Marcus Mariota season. It's not a Justin Herbert season. I would say it's a Darren Thomas season. If you remember uh, Darren Thomas, was the quarterback on the first Oregon team that played in the national championship game. But he came into that season as a real unknown. He had, the only meaningful action he'd gotten was in relief of a home loss the previous season to Boise State. I remember that game. I was there with my dad. I think Darren Thomas was, he was a redshirt quarterback that they like burned his redshirt to bring him in that game because they'd lost a couple other quarterbacks before him. And he almost led Oregon on this, this uh, comeback, you know, through a couple touchdown passes, looked good. Didn't, didn't, you know, didn't have a lot of a wow factor, but looked, looked good enough. And so coming into that next year season, it was, it, there was a thought of like, well, we know at least he can, he can do the things you need to do. And if you look at Darren Thomas's career with Oregon, he did not put up jaw dropping statistics. He, he never threw for 3000 yards in a season his completion percentage was in the low 60s, mm -hmm. uh, but he didn't turn the ball over. Uh, and he was surrounded by just a wealth of offensive options in the backfield and in the receiving core. And so his job was to pretty much run that Chip Kelly offense and distribute it to everybody else. He ran it a little bit only when he really needed to. He was not necessarily a dynamic runner the way that some other Oregon quarterbacks have been. And so I think that's, if we're talking best case scenario for Anthony Brown, it is a Darren Thomas role of come in, you're surrounded by a good team and just keep it moving, keep it moving, pick up first downs, distribute the ball to the playmakers, don't turn the ball over. And if he plays, if he plays anywhere near that, that level, I, I think it'll be a really good season. Yeah, Darren Thomas was the, the the guy that came to my mind as well when we thought when I was thinking about comparisons. I wonder though, how much of a difference does it make in terms of what kind of system Anthony Brown is in compared to a Darren Thomas, where it seemed like 
in the height of the Chip Kelly era, uh, you know, you were going to, you were going to, that offense was going to hum no matter who was at QB. Whereas what kind of a system is Cristobal and Moorhead running and could a, a a non-superstar, a workman Mm -hmm. of a quarterback uh, carry the load enough to be able to, to beat the, you know, the UWs or the USC's or the, the Ohio States in, in the country? I think, I think that's, that's a good question. And, and that won't really be answered to the fall, but I will, I will say that with Joe Moorhead, I think he has enough good experience as an offensive coordinator was a very successful offensive coordinator at Penn state uh, where I just think having an entire off season for him to really install the offense, Cristobal brought this up in his press conference after the spring game, where he just said they're just at a different place with their understanding of the offense. And he said, they never really got there in last season, the truncated uh, training camp. And then you've got games and you've got uh, guys sitting out with COVID and everything that he just never felt like they were fully able to unlock it. So in some ways, I think this will feel like, hey, we've got a new offensive coordinator this year. Even though it's his second year, it's going to have that feeling of like, hey, we've got this new guy. He's an imaginative play caller. He's able to put guys in in positions to help them succeed. I'm not saying he's going to be Chip Kelly, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't think he has to be <clears throat> Chip Kelly in order, in order for this offense to be one of the best in the Pac-12. I think there were flashes of it, especially early in the season last year, and then they kind of hit some struggles in the second half of the year. Uh, but I think they will come into this season uh, just far ahead of where, where they played last season. Like you said, this is a team that's, it's got a lot of playmakers on the outside um, at running back. You've got CJ Verdell, you've got uh, Jalen red, you've got uh, wide receivers who were very highly recruited four stars and five stars all throughout the roster um, so as you look at this, this offense, um, you know, what else stands out to you as, you know, you really think about, you know, what, what you're most excited about for this offense. And then are there any concerns? Is there any, uh, you know, fear that this, that there could be a, a chink in the armor somewhere? Yeah. I, I think the excitement level coming out of the spring camp is definitely, in the receiving core. If you look at uh, Oregon's receivers, they've got returning starters, basically three returning starters, Jalen Red and Johnny Johnson are guys that feel like they've been at Oregon forever. I feel like I've been watching these guys for five or six years. So they're both seniors who took advantage of that extra year. And then Micah Pittman, a highly touted uh, sophomore from Southern California. He was a big time recruit. Um, It'll be exciting to have him hopefully fully healthy, which we haven't really had. If you just gave me those three guys, uh, I would say this is a really good receiving core. But what's exciting is they've got some true freshmen, uh, Dante Thornton and Troy Franklin in particular, that showed up in the spring game and both made really dynamic catches. Both are tall, like we're talking like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, receivers, which has uh, not always been the case with with Oregon receivers. And so... I think that is the most loaded that position has been for the Ducks in quite a few years. Obviously, question is who's going to get them the ball. Uh, but but I, think, I think there's some real reason to be excited about the receiving core. If you ask me on the offensive side, 
like, where is my concern level? I would say it's definitely the offensive line. And if you look at how Oregon played last year, this was not a road grading offensive line. That is kind of the type that Mario Cristobal envisions for his program and Oregon, uh, you know, going back many years for, for many years under Mike Bellotti and Chip Kelly and Mark Helfrich, they had Steve Greatwood, who was one of the best offensive line coaches in the entire country. And he was there for, you know, close to 30 years, I think, as the mm-hmm. offensive line coach at Oregon. And it gave an Oregon fans just kind of a sense that, okay, the offensive line is, is not going to be the problem. Like there, there may be other problems. Uh, there may be a shaky defense, you know, there may be a secondary that gets burned, but the offensive line is, is going to know, what to do and, and how to do it. This was the, f- the first year uh, that I could remember in, in, you know, taking away maybe a couple of those rough years with Helfrich and, and Taggart, but this was the first year where I felt like this is a potentially a good Oregon team. And I just don't feel great about the offensive line. And so mm-hmm. that's a huge question for me over this off season. Oregon has a great strength and conditioning program. Can these guys bulk up, and just be in the kind of shape where when they take the field uh, next fall, that they're really a dominant force, which is asking a lot in the Pac-12 right now because of how so many teams have adopted that mindset that they're going to be the most physical team in the conference. Washington believes that. Mm-hmm. Stanford believes that. Utah believes that. And so it, it you know, to beat those types of teams – Oregon needs their offensive line to produce at a really high level. And I would say that's the biggest question that I have about this offense is, is can they do that? And it's, it's hard to make that determination after a spring game. You kind of need to see it, see them uh, playing a different colored Jersey. Yeah. I think there's a lot of reason for optimism for sure with this team, especially at those skill positions, you know, looking at just their their recruiting rankings and hearing a little bit of the chatter from from duck fans uh it, it sounds like this this wide receiver unit in particular uh, i mean are they on an uh, on an alabama or ohio state level in terms of talent i i i don't want to go that far i don't know if uh you know just looking at the starters i don't know that either jalen red or johnny johnson is uh is likely to be drafted in part because they're just not as big as um, typical receivers. And Oregon hasn't produced a lot of NFL caliber receivers. If you really think about it, Um, they produce, they tend to produce really good college receivers Mm -hmm. and uh, but, but not necessarily, you know, guys that are first round draft choices. So I'm, I'm not expecting Alabama or Ohio state levels, but what I, what I am expecting is, uh, is several different guys that can that can beat a defense in several different ways. Possession guys that can get open over the middle, guys that can that can beat a guy deep deep down the field, and a lot of different guys that have good hands and and will push each other in in training camp. So, um, if you want to put them on the Alabama Ohio State level, I won't stop you. But I, I think I'm I'm I think realistic that they could be have the best receiving core in the Pac-12. I don't think that's overselling yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, USC has got some really highly ranked guys as well, but other than USC, I don't, especially after the defection of Puka Nakua and, and Ty Jones from, from UW, 
I think I think you probably are right. They're right up there with with USC for the top wide receiver unit. Well, let's take a little time to to look at the defense. Um, well, okay, but bef- actually, before we do that, let's let's if you were to name one player on the offense that you would just say this guy is the X factor. He's if this guy meets or exceeds expectations, it's going to change everything for this offense. Who would that be? Yeah. I think it, it has to be CJ Verdell and CJ Verdell. If you think about his career as an Oregon running back, his freshman year, he ran for over a thousand yards. Uh, he averaged five yards a carry his sophomore year. He ran for over 1200 yards. He averaged over six yards a carry coming into last year. You would have expected this was a really breakthrough year. He's going to be an all pack 12 type performer. And, and it, you know, it's hard to make much of the season long numbers because of such a truncated season, but the number I'll, I'll refer you to is his yards per carry dropped from 6.2 to 4.4. He had an issue with fumbles and there really came to be a point where Travis Dye was the, and he had an issue with some injuries as well, but there came to be a point where Travis Dye was really the running back that, uh, that I think Oregon fans felt the most comfortable in. And Travis Dye was fantastic last year, uh, mm-hmm. both as a runner and as a receiver. I think he is going to get uncorked in a big way this season. So I think, uh, but Travis Dye doesn't have the size to really be that like every down pound it back. So if CJ Verdell has his mind on rushing for 2000 yards and pursuing a Heisman candidacy, I hope that that means that he is healthy. I hope that means that he solved the fumbling issues. And I, I hope it means that he's going to get back to being that five, six yards a carry out of the backfield. Because if, if he produces at that level, he doesn't have to run for 2000 yards, but if he's going to run for 1400, I think that's, that's an indicator that that offense is really you know, going at a top level. So that that's the guy I'll be looking at. All right. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about the defense. So uh, kind of going through those same types of questions again, as you look at the defense coming out of the spring, what is the unit that you're most excited about? And uh, where, where are your concerns on that defense? Uh, so I would say that the uh, the unit I'm I'm looking at I'll, I'll, I'll start it I'll start with the last part I already uh, brought up the offensive line was an area of concern I think the uh, oddly enough I'm going to say the defensive line is the area where I have the concern and and people might find that interesting because Kayvon Thibodeau is a defensive end mm-hmm. obviously he's as highly touted as a defensive player as Oregon has. But I'm, I'm more thinking about the guys alongside Kayvon Thibodeau on their front. They lost a couple seniors, including Jordan Scott, who was a really big player, Austin Faliu. Um, so they lost a couple uh, real big players up there. And that's a, a place where unless those other two, you know, they run a 3-4, unless those other two defensive linemen are really able to push defense, then the offensive line can really just focus on double teaming Thibodeau and really just focusing their efforts on him. So he needs to have help along that front in order to, to be the dynamic playmaker that they need him to be. So that's, that's the area that I'm looking at and saying, I'll be really curious as the season starts of how that unit rounds into shape. I think uh, 
the place that I have the most excitement is uh, is the linebacking core. This linebacking core is uh, is an incredible linebacking core. Uh, Noah Sewell, Isaac Slade, Mata Utia, Mace Funa. These are uh, three of the leading tacklers for Oregon last season. They're all returning as starters. They are all big time players. And I think uh, how they play will help to take some of the pressure off those guys on, on the, on the defensive line as well. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the, the linebacker crew is, is a source of optimism and, you know, sitting right behind the starters is the five-star Justin Flo. Yes. Um, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau came in as a highly touted five-star and I would say for the most part, he's delivered on those expectations. Give us, uh, for those of us that are not quite as familiar, what's the story with Justin Flo? And will he take a starting role at some point during the season? Yeah, so he had, he had a season-ending injury early last season. And so we didn't really see him on the field last year. And he, he came back and was, was kind of gradually brought back in the spring practice. They were giving him a few reps here, a few reps there, but they were kind of easing him back in. But every indication is, is that he was all over the field in the spring game. And the way Mario Cristobal talked in the post-game press conference, it was, it was like Justin Flo was the defensive player of the game, is, is how mm-hmm. I kind of took some of his comments. So uh, he's going to push those other guys for, for playing time. I don't know where he fits in. Uh, you know, they do run a three, four. So outside of the three guys that I named, there's another uh, outside linebacker position that Adrian Jackson is currently penciled into. But, but I think Justin Flo is more of an inside linebacker, which is where they have Isaac Slade, uh, Mata Utia and, and Noah Sewell. So uh, it certainly gives them depth. I think if he emerges enough to be uh, a starter or a leading tackler type on that defense that just speaks to uh, how good he is and, and what kind of contributions he's making. Uh, But it's not necessarily going to be easy for him to just get on the field. Now that he's healthy, he's, he's going to have to continue to, to work it. So I, that's the thing that I think fills me with the most excitement, Warren, is you hear about the different position battles. Mm -hmm. And I think because Cristobal has done such a great job, with the recruiting over the past is it does feel like even the really good players who you think would kind of have established themselves as starters, Jalen Red and Johnny Johnson have been starting basically for three or four years. They're going to get pushed at those receiver mm-hmm. positions by the young freshmen that are coming in. It's the same way with the linebacking course, some great returning linebackers, but now you've got a returning five-star freshman who, who missed last season with an injury who's going to be fighting them for playing time. And so I think the culture that that creates is so uh, exciting for the program, just to see guys competing for those spots. Absolutely. And you know that there are going to be guys that get injured this year. And when you've got a a really talented guy waiting in the wings, it just, those are the, that's the difference between the teams that, you know, can, can sustain success over the course of the whole season is do you have the horses behind the horses to keep going whenever there's a breakdown? And so, yeah, I can see even if Justin Flo doesn't start at the beginning of the season, the likelihood of him being needed at some point during the year is probably pretty high. Yeah. 
All right, so um, let's let's take Kayvon Thibodeau off the table. He seems like the the no brainer in terms of who's the the straw that really stirs the Oregon defense drink. But aside from Thibodeau, who would you say is your X factor for the defense that needs to have a big season, live up to, meet or exceed expectations? I'm going to take that and I'm going to turn it a little bit. And I don't think it's a player. I think it's an entire position group. And I think it's the, it's the secondary. Yeah. Uh, Oregon is in an interesting position where they had four defensive backs drafted in the NFL draft. They had a fifth defensive back uh, in Nick Pickett, who I believe was signed as a, as an undrafted free agent. And they have three returning starters <laughs> and, and they have that combination because they essentially had an entire secondary opt out that was supposed to be returning last year. You know, uh, Javon Holland opt out, Thomas Graham opted out, Brady Breeze dropped it out. The only player that got drafted that uh, that played last season was Diamador Lenore. And, uh, and so he played and then got drafted. So as a result, they've got these other returning starters. Mikhail Wright is a returning starter at the cornerback position. Verone McKinley is a returning starter at the safety. I think those are the two most highly touted ones. Jamal Hill is a returning starter at the nickelback position. So they've got a lot of experience. I would say that similar to the way I felt about the offensive line last year, I would say Oregon's secondary was, was not kind of up to standard last year. And especially that came in forcing turnovers i remember talking to you going into the usc game in the pac-12 and i i gave you the interception numbers of the oregon defense that season and how really abysmal they were that they just weren't intercepting opposing quarterbacks and then they they came through and they had a couple picks on keaton slovis that really changed the tenor of that of that pac-12 championship game but that's the type of thing that will need to happen uh, early and often, you know, for this year's defense. I looked up that uh, last year, Oregon lost the turnover battle on the season. And if you go back to 2000, so basically go back to the Joey Harrington era, hmm. there are six times in that span of a little over 20 years that Oregon has lost the turnover battle for the season. And Warren, if I were to give you like a magic marker and you were to highlight the teams that you were guessing lost the turnover battle, you would probably ace the test because it was an eight and five team, a five and six team, a seven and six team, a four and eight team, a seven and six team, and last year's team. Like, it's just so simple that like, if you don't force enough turnovers and if you turn the ball over too many times, you're going to lose a lot of games. And the difference between, you know, the Rose Bowl team that went 12 and two a couple of years ago, they didn't turn the ball over and they forced a ton of turnovers, especially their secondary. And so that's what I'm looking at is, can this be a ball hawking type of secondary that comes up with big interceptions and changes field position and everything like that? Uh, that, that is the question for the Oregon defense. So Mark, if I'm hearing you correctly, when I asked you what your greatest concern was, you said it was the de defensive line. Yeah. And then when I said, what is the greatest X factor? Yeah. You said, well, our defensive backfield is in real jeopardy of being abused this year. So, so is the defensive backfield really your greatest concern or 
is there are they are they at an access point where they could be phenomenal this year or horrible this year or are you just hoping for adequate i don't think they're going to be horrible i don't have a concern there so i'm going to stick with my comment about the because i really do feel, feel like on the defensive line Thibodeau's success is so dependent on the success of the other two defensive linemen. And I really don't know what to expect from those guys. Mm -hmm. At least with the defensive backs, we have these guys, Mikhail Wright, Verone McKinley, guys like that, that have that got a lot of playing time last year that showed flashes of, of, of something. So that's a little more where I'm not concerned about it um, being a nightmare. I'm not concerned about them giving up 400 yards of passing every game. Uh, but it is the it is the place where I'm like, okay, if if they take a leap forward, then this defense turns from like a good defense to potentially like, you know, a Pac-12 championship type defense. But I think I think that's um, that's kind of so uh, you know I guess it depends on what you mean by X factor. I think when I think of the X factor, I think of like, uh, what is what is the one person or the one unit that you'll be able to like reference and determine how good a how good a season this was and I think if yeah. if you just tell me how many passes that this defensive backfield picks off over the course of next year that would give me a pretty good indicator of what kind of season it was okay so um if the expectation is to win 10 plus games in 2021 what does the defensive backfield need to do in order to to, to make sure that that happens. Yeah. Gosh, I wish I had a lot. When I was browsing the numbers, it seems like um, in a really good year that we're picking off about a one and a half interceptions game. Mm -hmm. So over the course of what a, a 12 game season, that would be maybe 18 interceptions. That would be, that would be phenomenal. I think if you're picking off more than one a game, Mm -hmm. uh, then you're really doing something right. Right. Uh, last year's last year's team, uh, I do have this in front of me. They they averaged forcing one turnover a game. Period, and that mm -hmm. was fumbles and interceptions combined. Right. They just forced one turnover a game, and so they didn't even they didn't even make an interception a game. So I think uh, yeah, if they're intercepting. Uh, one or two every game then then that's a good sign if they're intercepting one every other game that's that's more of a red flag because that tells me they're not they're not quite getting off the field in the way that they need to well we will definitely have to circle back and see where we're at with the teams as we're coming out of the fall and heading into the season but looking at uh Oregon's schedule uh you know what are you what are you confident about in terms of their win loss uh, you know are there any games that as you look at it now you would say okay that's that's a dangerous game or this is a game that will make or break our season what are your thoughts on on that from a a general perspective right now well, obviously, the first one that sticks out is uh, their second week of the season. They go on the road to Ohio State and then follow that up with a home game against Stony Brook. So, I mean, 
that is a that is a brutal back-to-back stretch <laughs> that Oregon's got. No, but I poor, mean, poor Stony Brook. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I would say, um, you know, Oregon was supposed to host Ohio State last year, and I feel much better about Oregon's chances hosting a big game like that uh, than I do about them going into Columbus second game of the season and and coming out with a win at the same time i'm totally going to talk myself into it especially if they play well against fresno state to open the season that coming come september 11th second game of the year i'm going to be talking myself into the ways in which i think they can they can beat the buckeyes but but in all seriousness that's the game that you would circle and you would say uh they would they definitely won't be favored in that game mm-hmm. Everything beyond that, I don't know that they'll be favored every time. For instance, I don't know that they would be favored against the Huskies in Seattle. Obviously, that will depend on how those teams play going into the, uh, you know, going into that game. I don't know that they'll be favored against Utah in Salt Lake or even against uh, Stanford at Stanford. So they've got some some tough road games there against some of the more traditional Pac-12 powers. But uh, overall, I think the home slate looks pretty manageable and so if oregon holds serve and does the work that they need to do at home i i think that's a very realistic expectation to say this is a season where oregon should win every home game and then it's what happens on the road that really determines how special of a season it is all right well let's do a quick let's do a quick uh win win loss count so just give me your gut reaction no hemming and hawing about it yeah, uh, but this will give us an idea of what what's a reasonable expectation for for this upcoming season. Yeah. So uh, first game of the season uh, at home versus Fresno State. That's a win. Okay, on the road at Ohio State. I I have to put that one in the loss column. Okay, uh, Stony Brook. Pencil it in. <laughs> okay, at home versus Arizona. I'll take the win. At Stanford. I'm I'm gonna say a win there. I think I think Stanford might take a step back this year. Okay. And then they got a bye week, and then they come back at home versus California. I I I I'm giving them a win. Okay. All right. At UCLA. Boy. Uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give this one to the Bruins. I think Chip is is building something. I think they almost got the Ducks last year in Eugene. I think. Uh, and I, I kind of want to guard myself against uh, expectations that are that are too high. So I think, I think that's a setback. Okay. At home versus Colorado. I'm I'm going to take the win. Okay. Uh, on the road against Washington. So Oregon would be coming into this game six and two. What are we? What are we mm-hmm. thinking? Maybe a seven and one Husky team that they're playing. Uh, you know, we possibly, haven't, possibly yeah, haven't gone through the Husky schedule. So Pac-12 North implications. I can't be on the dog and duck show and pick the dogs to win that game. So okay. I, I got to go with, with Oregon. All right. So you're going with, with Oregon. Then they're uh, at home against uh, their pesky, uh, you know, cousin Washington state. Yeah. I, I take the ducks at home. Certainly. Okay. All right. And then back on the road against Utah. Yeah, I think I think they dropped this one. Okay, and then finally their in-state uh, rival, Oregon State, at home. 
Do they get revenge on, on last yeah, year's they, loss? They definitely get revenge on the Beavers. So that, that sets them up at nine and three. Right. That would be seven and two, or uh, would that be seven and two in conference? Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know, I, I factored in that if, you know, if the Huskies then are seven and two, that would give Oregon the tiebreaker, put them in the Pac 12 championship game. So um, that's, yeah, if you want me to go on the record, I guess that would be my that would be my prediction. So you're 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 guessing um, nine and three going into a Pac-12 game. So potentially, you're. I mean, it, it's pretty safe to say if if either the Huskies or the Ducks make it to the Pac-12 championship game, there's a strong likelihood that they'll win one of their two games, either the bowl game or the Pac-12 championship. So nine games going in a 10 game a 10 win season is certainly a reasonable expectation and i think uh, i don't know how you feel about this warren but i feel like if you're rooting for a team like oregon or washington with their relative histories i think anytime you win 10 games it has to be considered a successful season period like i just don't i don't care how you got there i don't care whether it was you know, whether it was only because you won the bowl game or you had to win the conference championship game or what, I just think like that's, that's the mark. And if you tell me if a team won 10 games, then it was a good season. I think if a team won nine games, it wasn't necessarily a bad season. I I can't say it's a bad season. So it's kind of nine to me as a wash Mm -hmm. and and up is good. Um, If you're going eight and five, then you're, then you're starting to kind of have like, man, I really didn't like the way this season played out. Right. Like, right. Yeah. And anything above 10 feels pretty, pretty special. That's rarefied air. Yeah. If you're talking, yeah, if if there's a a number after the one, if it's 11 or 12, then, then you're talking about something pretty special. Well, you know, coming from a dog fan to a duck fan, I, I can, I can see your reason for optimism, uh, for this upcoming season. And, and certainly, uh, other than your your pick against Washington, uh, I think most of it probably makes sense. You know, whether or not it's beating UCLA or losing to UCLA or or Utah, uh, you know, I could see this Oregon team beating any of those teams um, at Stanford. You never know with Stanford. At least that's been the 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 Washington experience is that they could be awful all year long, and just play their best game of the season against us. So yeah, that's, that's uh, definitely something to keep an eye on for sure. All right. Well, any final thoughts about this Oregon duck team before we wrap up today's podcast? Oh, just, I, I think we've now hit the point Warren where we are closer to the start of the next football season than we are to the end of the previous football season. I think we reached that last week. Okay, so, that's good news. It's like officially countdown. It's like the football now. solstice. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I know we're going to be talking, you know, the NBA playoffs are going to get going and we're going to have other things to kind of talk about for a while. And then there'll be, you know, August will be here and, and all of a sudden we'll just be like, oh my gosh, the season is starting in a month. But uh, but really the season couldn't come here soon enough. Last year's season, I don't think for either of us, counted as a full season in terms of satisfying the hunger for like you know duck football or husky football i think it just felt like this abbreviated teaser and so 
to have a full season with potentially stadiums full of fans, you know, uh, that's just, it could not come soon enough. Absolutely. I mean, you know, last year was so completely distasteful for Husky fans, um, you know, really feeling like we had a strong squad, feeling like we were moving in a really good direction. And then to have the season ended by COVID and, and to watch what appeared to be other than in the PAC 12 championship game, a pretty mediocre Oregon duck football team. You know, I mean, I think if you, if you're going to be fair and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but other than their performance against USC, uh, this was not a spectacular Oregon football team. So for Husky fans to see that team win the PAC 12, go to the Fiesta bowl, uh, that was that was a difficult pill to swallow. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this, Warren. Uh, if you could take a win over the Ducks, but the Ducks win the Pac-12, or you can win the Pac-12 but lose to the Ducks, which would you take right now? Yeah, that's such a sickening question to. To, to ponder but I think uh, you have to take the Pac-12 championship you know okay. you, you, Interesting. you got you got to take the trophy and um, you know but to lose to Oregon at home and then to have to endure all of the 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 jabs that come with saying we're the Pac-12 champion but oh you lost to Oregon you know that's that's about as fun as uh, it is for Oregon fans to be reminded every day that they lost to Oregon State. Right. You know, it just, it's uh, it's a sickening equation for sure. Yeah. Turn, turn the tables. How would you, how would you respond to that? That's the interesting thing. Uh, so that happened two years ago, you know, Cristobal's yeah. first year, Oregon beat Washington and then laid an egg in Pullman the next week. It was a mm-hmm. game day game day was there and uh Oregon yeah that's was- why i said the pesky uh cousin washington yeah. state yeah and so and then oregon had a couple performances later that year they lost badly to utah and to arizona they just had some road games that were just terrible and so washington won the pac-12 if mm-hmm. i recall and and yet oregon kind of had the feather in the cap of winning that dramatic overtime game at Otson. And I loved going to that game and with a couple Husky fans. And I, I don't know that I would give that up just for another Pac-12 championship. And I, I think that I'm kind of at the point now where uh, Oregon has beaten Washington so many times and I've developed uh, such a fear of losing because of that, that... Mm. It's like I'm I'm wanting to delay because I really do believe at some point a reckoning is coming. At some point, Oregon's right. going to have the decade where they can't beat the Huskies. So I'm just trying to put that off as long as possible. And yeah. so I will I will I think at this point I would default to just keeping the the wins over the Huskies. Uh, but then of course if if it works out the other way, I would totally frame it as well. The Pac-12 championship is what we were after all along. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a shifting narrative, but that's what sports are all about.
Well, hey, this has been fun. Uh, thank you for listening to the show, Mark. Thanks for taking the time to to research and prepare uh, on this subject. And uh, if you're listening, thank you again. Please be sure to subscribe, like, follow, and share uh, with everybody on YouTube and on our uh, podcast, Apple, Spotify, and yada yada yada. So, thank you again, and uh, we'll we'll be back next week to get back to the world of sports. We'll see where we're at with the continuing Aaron Rodgers saga, uh, where things are trending with the NBA MVP. Um, Steph Curry was the, the man of the moment. Russell Westbrook is doing incredible things. So lots to talk about. So stick around and uh, we'll, we'll see you next week on the Dog and Duck Show.